want you to picture this scenario. I have been in the Merry Creek office all day. I've had several one-on-ones, coffees, that have gone on for a long time and they've been quite intense, pastoral, with people. Um, I've also worked on my sermon. I've done lots of boring admin for the, the diocese. They're always sending me things. I've got to fill out more forms. And so I'm really looking forward to coming home, eating dinner, having a glass of wine, lying on the couch, watching an episode of The Wire, my favourite TV show at the moment. There's nothing wrong with relaxing, is there? That's an important part of life. But for me, my desire to relax has become so strong that I feel like I deserve to relax. Nothing else matters to me apart from relaxing and taking it easy. In fact, fair to say, in that moment, relaxing has become a bit of an idol for me. I want it more than God even. I probably didn't say that out loud. It's probably not in my head, but probably that's a reality. So then I get home and Ezra has a full nappy and the poo stinks. And Leo is yelling, he's my four-year-old. Ezra's 18 months, by the way. My Leo is my four-year-old. He, he's, uh, he's not getting, he's yelling because he doesn't get the meal that he wants at the dinner table. And Joe, my wife, she's completely exhausted and feeling stressed. She's been at work too. She's also been making the dinner and she's writing a paper for a conference. And I, I try and sneak into our bedroom because uh, I want to escape my responsibilities. But Leo comes screaming in because mum won't let him watch Fireman Sam on the iPad. So I become all strict and twitchy and I tell him off. And he screams some more. Meanwhile, Ezra's yelling some more because his nappy is leaking. See, I came home for a haven only to find that the heat of life was focused on me. So I escaped to my iPhone and I open the Facebook app and I just do this for a while and tune out. Joe asks me to come and help with the dinner, but my mind is elsewhere. And the thorns of sin have wrapped around my heart. The sins of selfishness and self-centeredness are there. My vertical relationship with God is messed up, isn't it? Because I put other things in front of God. And that's now affecting my horizontal relationships with people. What I need is for my heart to be transformed so that I can love God the right way and also love my family the right way. And what I actually need is a cross-centred life. A cross-centred life is one that puts Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, everything that is about Jesus and what he says as the focus of my life. And this includes what Jesus has done for me and for us specifically. He's chosen us and called us to God. He's made us new and able to understand the gospel. He's given us forgiveness. He's brought us back to God. He's set us apart. He's, reversed, he's reserved a place for us in heaven where he will give us our resurrected and glorified bodies. This means changing our identity. See, I'm not Peter the minister or Peter the musician or even Peter the husband and father, for that matter. I'm Peter, the forgiven child of God, 
a new creation, and also a husband, father, musician, whatever. I am not the product of my parents, as some people might think of themselves, or the sum of my achievements or failures. I am Peter, the forgiven, justified, adopted child of God, a new creation, and also a husband, father, minister, musician from the, my family and from, who's gone through the experiences of life that I've gone through. We are justified because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We are forgiven people. Our sins have been paid for. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2 to 2 reminds us, if anyone, that is any Christian, does sin, because Christians do sin, don't we? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We are cleared of our sins if we are justified. We're made right with God. We're given his righteousness. Jesus has given us his status of not guilty before the judgment seat of God. And when we as, when we as Christians sin, Jesus stands in front of the Father and says, uh, they should not be judged because of what I've done. God is faithful and just to forgive us. This is at the heart of our faith. This is at the heart of our faith. If we're to have a Christian, a cross-shaped identity. Also, 1 John 3 verse 1 reminds us that God has adopted us. See what, the, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are God's children. We can approach him with confidence, knowing that he cares for us deeply, despite all of our brokenness. So we will have a cross-centred identity if we remind ourselves of this every day. We are justified and we are adopted. This kind of faith keeps us focused on and remembering God's grace and what Jesus has done for us. And knowing this truth will lead us naturally to want to repent every day. Repentance keeps us facing our ongoing struggle with sin and thereby avoiding pride. We often make the mistake of thinking that faith and repentance are only for becoming a Christian. People think, you know, you become a Christian, you have faith in Jesus, you say sorry, and then you go on in your life. But actually, having a cross-shaped identity means doing this every day. Faith is about continually turning to Christ. Repentance is about continually turning away from your sin so that we can fully realise what so that we can fully realise what faith-driven repentance looks like. I want us to now look at the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15. Because this story really shows us the actions required that can help us to have in our hearts um, a cross-shaped identity and have that kind of faith-driven repentance. Now, you probably know this story really well, um, but I'll remind you of it. Because often we have pieces in our minds and we forget some of the main bits. So there's a man with two sons and the younger, more uh, kind of rebellious son makes a socially uh, inappropriate and devastating decision to ask for his inheritance early. And um, his father, while his heart is completely broken, says, yes, you can have that. He obliges his son. So the younger son takes his money 
and goes away, presumably to a big city that everyone goes to, all his friends are going to, where there's lots of action. And he spends all his money on wild living. And then he, his extended backpacker's journey is really uh, messed up in the middle because there's a huge famine and uh, he runs out of money. And uh, he takes this lowly job of feeding the pigs for a local in that city. The heat of the pressures of life were pounding down on him. The youngest son's sense of self-worth was at a rock bottom. He was thinking that he'd wasted his life. He'd, he'd definitely trampled all over his relationships with his family. And now at this point, he could have blamed his circumstances. He could have said, it's the famine and my terrible job that is causing my life to be a mess. It's, it's the famine and my terrible job that's causing me to sin. He could be saying that. But see, a lesson we've learned from this series is this. For us to experience long change in our long-term change in our Christian life, we need to see that our biggest problem is not our circumstances, but it's ourselves. So let's look at what the younger son does. First of all, he wakes up and he comes to his senses. Verse 17. Now look at verse 17. Sure, it took difficulty and poverty to push him to realise his true state. This is what God does sometimes. He uses the heat of life to make us realise what's going on, to gain self-awareness. Uh, the authors of the book How People Change write that when the, the heat of life is on and you're a Christian, several things normally occur. I'll list them for you. You see life as a moral drama of immense proportions. How will I live, you think to yourself? You have a new sobriety about life and the reality of sin, suffering and the need for grace. Momentary pleasures and distractions no longer hold your attention. This is the life breath of which biblical repentance breathes. Biblical truth begins to make sense as you think about your situation. The Bible gets personal. I don't know if you've had that experience. The heat is on. And then every time you read the Bible, it's like it's written to you in your situation right now. You begin to make connections between your heart and your behaviour. You begin to see that God is a God of grace and mercy. He begins to get attractive. I remember when I was about 20 years old, there was this girl that I really liked. Let's just call her the cellist. And uh, I had a massive crush on her. And uh, she dumped me. It was a sad day. I was completely de devastated. In fact, it was one of those, I was one of those 20-year-olds that took six months to get over a four-month relationship. I was a complete mess. But this time of heat for me was a significant turning point in my relationship with God because what happened was I, it triggered something in me to make me search out what is my life about and why, why am I hanging so much on this cellist? Um, so, so I started to think about what God wanted me to do with my life. I, I clinged on to the promises of God. I spent a lot of time talking to the mentors in my life. I read the Bible and prayed like I never had. And I, th I really think God used this, this heat of this moment in my life to actually draw me closer to him. This kind of thing can happen to us all. Perhaps we lose our job. We fall into a heat. The heat is on. We reassess our life. 
we run back to God. Or maybe we get seriously sick or a family is diagnosed with a serious illness and our life falls down around us. The heat is on and we seek out God. So what are we saying? Step one in the daily life of having a a cross-shaped identity is having a faith-driven repentance. It's to wake up, come to our senses, like the younger son did. He's in the pigsty and he's like, what have I done? I am the problem, not my circumstances. And so you come back to God. But then the next thing that he does is he owns up. Look at verse 18. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Now, if you remember the confession we read out earlier, it's in the booklet. We actually read out, Father, we have sinned against heaven and against you. We are not worthy worthy to be called your children. It's like it's lifted out of Luke 15. This is appropriate. You've got to own up to what's wrong. If we can be humble and say that we are not worthy of God, of his love and, and forgiveness each day, then what this does is it stops us from taking his grace and love lightly. Having a cross-shaped identity means continually admitting your sins to God. Now perhaps you've been part of a church tradition that has played down the need for confession. Some some churches, some church traditions focus more on the good vibes you get from God and coming to church and being part of the Christian community is about having good vibes and uh, going home feeling warm and fuzzy. Whereas other church traditions actually play up the need for our repentance. And I think there's been a bit of a reaction by some against the Catholic Church and also the fact that the, the worldwide Protestant church right now is being led by the baby boomers. And the baby boomers were the hippies who broke away from their conservative parents. And they've probably played it down a fair bit. But, you know, for centuries, centuries, um, Christians made a, a daily practice of naming their sins to God and confessing their sins. If you're going to do this properly, there are some things you can do to make it work well. First of all, you need to have godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is sorrow sorrow that is based around what other people think of you. So you get caught out and you say, yes, I did it, and then you break down, but you're more worried about what your friends are thinking. You know, I think of the person who's caught in sexual sin. So often the shame for them is horizontal. That was not a joke. They are embarrassed that everyone has found out, the people around them. They're not worried about their vertical relationship with God. Worldly sorrow is self-centred. Godly sorrow is Jesus-centred. Godly sorrow is concerned about what God thinks and demonstrates a genuine remorse for the people who have been affected by their sin. Worldly sorrow produces tears of self-pity. Godly sorrow produces tears of humility. If you're going to repent also, um, you've got to own up to your sin. You've also got to see the sin beneath the sin. Uh, There are behavioural sins, like bitching about people, for example. And there's a heart sin below the surface. 
You lack self-worth. Your identity is in your status, so you bitch about others because you're jealous of them. What are the idolatrous lies that are driving your sins? Remember last week I talked about how if you break commandments 4 to 10 out of the 10 commandments, Sabbath breaking, honouring parents, not, not honouring parents, murder, adultery, theft, slander or envy, then it's guaranteed that you've passed through commandments 1 to 3 and broken them, which is having only one God or not having only one God, making idols for yourself and blaspheming. Repentance shows you what you need to work on. Repentance brings you closer to God and closer to the heart of the issue. Also, and this is what the story of the prodigal son really shows us, is that if you're going to repent and own up to your sin, you actually have to own up to your righteousness too, not just to your sin. See, if you have tried to create a righteousness apart from God, apart from Jesus, then you need to repent of that. You can have an outward behaviour that looks good on the outside, but actually on the inside is driven by sinful motives. You might sign up to millions of ministries at church and this looks righteous on the outside, but in your heart you're perhaps driven by wanting others to look at you and say how good you are. You want others to speak well of you. And perhaps you're serving God 50%, but also 50% you're serving yourself. If you think about the story of the prodigal son, it's the disapproving, self-righteous, older brother who needs to repent. He has worked hard for his father all these years and he never gave a fatted calf to him. He never had a party, never had a celebration. Why hasn't he been rewarded for his good works? He's got a problem of self-righteousness. He's not excited that his younger brother's come home. We can all be rebellious younger brothers and we need to repent. And we can all also be self-righteous older brothers and we need to repent of that. So what have I said so far? I've said admitting your sin in a cross-shaped lifestyle, developing a cross-shaped identity involves godly, not worldly sorrow, seeing the sin beneath the sin and repenting of your righteousness as well. Let's continue through the story of the prodigal son. Our youngest son has woken up. He's owned up to his sin. And then as he walks down the road and approaches his father, his father comes running from a distance. He's seen him out the window. He's filled with compassion and joy and he's bursting with love and he embraces him. He puts his arms around him and kisses him. The youngest son cries out how sorry he is for what he has done. But the father was so excited that he told his servants to put the best robe on him and to put the ring on him, showing that, you know, here's my signet ring here. And this shows that I'm you know, part of my Family, I mean, it's not really a tradition that holds much weight these days, but back in the time of the prodigal son, the father giving his youngest son the ring back, it's like saying, you're in our family again. And also, let's kill the fatted calf because it's our prize calf and we can have a big spit roast and this will be a great party. See, what's going on here is an important part of having a cross-shaped identity, and that is the shifting of weight from the burden of our sin to God's grace. That's what's going on in the story. When we admit our sin, when we come back, when we come to our senses, God's love becomes special to us. The false idols that we've been worshipping, wealth, lust, power, 
success, status, possessions, career, these suddenly become not important to us anymore. They lose their appeal. And the younger son had that experience, didn't he? He'd lost his need for independence and travel and wild living. He much preferred being back with his dad. The weight has shifted from the son's shoulders to the father's heart, the father's embrace. The younger son can let go of his sin. The younger son can know true freedom and grace. And as we start to experience the love of Christ like this, change will occur in our hearts. We will grow in our faith. Just as the father's love was lavish for his younger returning son, so it's God's love lavish for us. When you repent like this, you begin to rest in Christ's work as you confess your sins, asking for forgiveness and grace. You get smaller and Christ gets bigger. This produces a godly self-forgetfulness, quite different from self-loathing. You look at Christ, not just at your sin. You get a new energy, a new joy, a new gratitude, a new hope, a new perseverance and purpose. If you want to move forward in your faith, you can by, do it by remembering your new identity. You're a justified person, you're adopted, you're made, you're forgiven, you're a child of God, and then you can daily repent. You can pursue the things that please God. You can have the courage to wake up and confess your sins. This is a powerful dynamic that produces true freedom. We have a new identity, a new power to change and fight the ongoing battle with sin. Let me finish with a story similar to the one you heard at the start. This is the story of me. Instead of the broken me, this is the me now that's trying to apply the principles of the cross-shaped life. I've been at the Mary Creek office all day. I've had several one-on-ones and done some boring admin for the diocese. And I've walked on, worked on my sermon. I'm feeling exhausted. I've just some time to myself. I want to have a bit more time to myself. And so I'm looking forward to coming home, eating dinner, having a glass of red lying on the couch and watching an episode of The Wire. But then the Holy Spirit stirs in my heart and reminds me that while rest is really important and that we've got to have a Sabbath and that even Jesus had a Sabbath, life isn't all about me. Joe's been at work too. And she shouldn't have to bear all the, all the responsibility and stress of the kids on her own. In fact, I'm reminded that by serving Joe and my family, I'm serving God. This is what Christ-like humility is all about. My, my desire to relax is still there, but it drops down in order for priority in my desires. Higher up in the order of desires is my desire to keep my marriage vows to love Joe in sickness and in health with no, with no kids or with two very young boys that are full of energy. This suddenly matters to me more. And even more than that, I want to serve God by loving the people around me. The glass of wine, the couch, the TV, all of that can wait. So I get home and Ezra is full 
of Pooh in his nappy. There's a Pooh nami, let's just face it. Leo is yelling because he's not getting the meal that he wants and he can't watch Fime and Sam on the iPad. Joey's completely exhausted because she's writing a paper for a conference and trying to get everything under control. And I remember this to myself because I'm trying to live with a cross-shaped identity and God's working in my heart and I'm experiencing change. I remember relaxation might seem good but it didn't die for me. Relaxation didn't suffer on my behalf. Relaxation wasn't raised from the dead on my behalf. Relaxation never sent the Holy Spirit, the true comforter. Relaxation doesn't intercede for me with God. Relaxation doesn't justify me. Relaxation can't make me a child of God. Can you see how I'm mentally putting to death all of my idols and replacing it with Jesus? So I see the door to my bedroom and I think, oh, should I pull out the phone and check Facebook? because I could escape my responsibilities. But I have a sense of joy in being able to just ignore that and come and step in. Because I've been living with a cross-shaped identity, my vertical relationship with God is actually in a pretty good shape, and so my horizontal relationships with my family and the people around me is in order too. Leo comes barging in screaming because Mum won't let him watch Fireman Sam, and I tell him with a firm and appropriate voice to not argue with mum, but I don't fly off the handle. And Ezra is crying because his nappy is leaking, so I volunteer to change it, and it stinks. I'm not trying to present myself as a hero here, or some kind of messiah, but as a person who's trying to live in a cross-shaped way, putting to death uh, my sins and my idols and living for God and living for other people. I came home hoping for a haven only to find the heat of life was on. It was focused on me and the people around me. And I remember that this is exactly the way the Bible says life is like. I'm not in heaven yet. Rather, there are times of struggle and hard work and exhaustion and suffering. And I have to learn to see God with me in the heat of the moment as I change the nappy. But strangely enough, as I press on in the glorious marathon that is the Christian life, as I learn to die to myself, as I keep Jesus and his life, death and resurrection and ascension at the centre, as I remember that I'm forgiven and a child of God, it's then that I discover true joy and freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that all of us can embrace a cross-shaped identity. We can all remember that we are justified because of what you have done. We're forgiven, we're made righteous, and also we're adopted as children of God. And we pray that every day we can remind ourselves of that, and every day we can repent of our sins in a healthy and godly way. We can come to our senses and own up to what we've done, and then shift the burden of our sins from ourselves onto you because we know you want to carry the weight for us. We pray that um, for all of us in this room who are experiencing the pressures of life now, and that's a lot of us, uh, at different types of intensity, we pray that we can know your presence in our lives now. Amen.